Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. I thought I'd run out of those uh, little postcards, but I came up with a few more, and there's some on the back table uh, about the TED conference, so help yourself. Um, as some of you might know, um, the reason I was gone for the last couple of weeks was that um, I was in Boulder, Colorado, um, where I, uh, my wife Jane and I attended the graduation of our son, uh, Adam, from Naropa University. Uh, I did a little teaching while I was there too, but that was the main the main reason, and it was um, it was great. It was really great. Uh, and out of that visit is coming this this talk, as you'll see in a few moments. Um, but first, I want to um, just share a little bit of uh, uh, hmm. in Buddhism. It's called mudita. In Yiddish, it's called kvelling. <laughs> uh, now, kvelling is really uh, often translated as swelling with pride, but pride is different from mudita. So it's actually pride. Uh, you you kind of there's something that you can take credit for. But in when I uh, when I feel what I feel for uh, uh, just being so happy to see where my son Adam is, it's he's uh, he's just an, a, a beautiful guy, an amazing guy, and I'm just so happy to see him come to his fullness or in the process of coming to his fullness. Mm. He's a great guy. He's a he's fun, a deep thinker. Um very good heart and very authentic. Somebody said uh, is uh, uh to us in one of the restaurants, one of the servers said, "Adam He's the most real person I know. So real, it makes you painful sometimes. <laughs> it's painful sometimes. But he just speaks directly from his heart, and usually with a lot of um, care and kindness. But he's not afraid to speak his truth. Uh, first of all, oh, and he got all straight A's this term. Graduate, his GPA was 3.91, which 
you know, I don't know how many times I'll get a chance to say that, so I might as well say it now. <laughs> he, when I went to school, it was kind of getting through school. And one good thing about his education, which was a six-year experience because he took off a year twice. He went, went to Asia, went to Bodh Gaya, uh, ordained for a brief time, sat, uh, sat at Spirit Rock. One year did a lot of body work uh, trainings. Another year he took off and uh, sat for three months at IMS and uh, did also an intensive body work training. Went from one, started out at Seattle University, took a year off, said, nah, Evergreen feels right, it's good. Took a year off, nah, Naropa is the right place for me and finished the last two summers, the last two years at Naropa, which is a Buddhist university. And on a personal note, my going there and hearing, uh, being there for the graduation, it's like a full circle because that's where I fell in love with the Dharma. Naropa, uh, the first summer of Naropa in 1974, uh, where I went out to see Ram Das, who was there along with Trungpa Rinpoche, met Joseph Goldstein and fell in love with practice and went for the next five summers each, each year. Uh, and then, and it became a university. It was an Europa Institute, and then became a university. Uh, and it's it's a very uh, it's the the one Buddhist university um, in that I know of in in the in the West um, that really teaches how to think and uh, go deeply into things. And uh, as I started to say, his education, he really. Um, he took courses that he wanted to learn. He actually wanted to learn, you know, how radical. That's not what I went to college for. <laughs> I wanted to get through. <laughs> but anyway, he did a great job. And the, uh, the graduation, Howard Dean was the, um, was the keynote uh, speaker. One thing that, um, that, fits into this that I want to share that from Howard Dean, uh, his speech, which was about the, the younger generation. Um, and it was very inspiring and gave me some hope just seeing all of these kids and getting to have conversations with, uh, with a number of them was very moving. The, 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 um, keynote student speaker, gave the most inspiring talk, mesmerizing, and um, had me really uh, welling up with inspiration about making a difference in the world. It's, I can't communicate the energy that she had, but she'd gone through a whole lot and was committed to changing the world and made you want to go out and join the Peace Corps right there. Um, Anyway, Howard Dean, what, one thing that he said that, that has stuck with me um, was that um, this, the younger generation has very different values than the older, the old fogies. Um, and that, uh, and, and to, to underscore his point, he 
talked about a demographic of Christian evang- uh, evangelicals that the um, the Democratic National Convention or uh, National Committee uh, uh, did, and they found that Christian evangelicals over like 55, I think it was, their main issues were uh, about abortion, uh, gays, and other stuff that were clearly about us and them. And that the main issues in um, under 30, I think it was, Christian evangelicals, their main issue uh, concerns were about poverty and uh, climate change and making this a better world. And uh, that was really moving. He said, you know, it's, it's time to go beyond the us and them and this new generation has got it a whole lot more together than that. So, um, it was, it was great. So Adam, um, by the way, uh, after he graduated and we were there for one more week uh, and said goodbye on Monday and on Tuesday, he um, boarded, uh, he got on a plane to Alaska um, He landed fine, he checked in, he made it. Um, Didn't know a soul, no contact. He had a couple of contacts that that were gonna kinda get set up, but didn't really know anybody, had no idea, has no idea what he's gonna do. He has the Lonely Planet Guide, that's one thing he's got. And he's starting on his adventure, which for me is exactly the perfect place for him to be. He wants to earn enough money so that then he can go to South America and have his adventure down there. And uh, I wish I had had the opportunity to do that when I was, after I got out of uh, college. So um, uh, he's he's just where he needs to be. And we, I'm so fortunate that we have a, a great relationship and with his mom too. The three of us really enjoyed each other. So um, one thing about Naropa, which was founded by Trungpa Rinpoche, uh, who was this kind of iconoclastic um, Tibetan brilliant crazy wisdom teacher. He He's, he was in the crazy wisdom lineage where you, kn- you weren't sure whether it was wisdom or crazy sometimes, but whenever I would sit in, I would never miss a Trungpa Rinpoche talk. I've mentioned him here before. He'd come in about, oh, an hour and a half late to his, his talks, hour and a half, maybe two hours, you know, but you didn't want to miss it. One time he came in on time just to blow everybody's mind because they usually came like an hour late. And he gave the talk and then left and said, okay, now you got to come. But um, he really challenged people to 
um, to not hide behind what he called spiritual materialism. And one of his main um, classics is cutting through spiritual materialism. Another one's the myth of freedom. He also started the Shambhala Path of the Warrior and there's Shambhala Center here in, uh, in Berkeley. Anyway, what he, he talked about a lot was authenticity and confidence and fearlessness um, in, a, in a way that was unique and um, brought out sometimes the edge for, um, for Buddhist practitioners. And that definitely had its uh, a f- rippling effect on, on Adam, who is a very, as you might get, sincere practitioner. He's re- for a, quite a while, Adam said, oh, from about like eight or nine till about, oh, f- 15 or so, Dad, that's your Buddhaya stuff. Just keep it to yourself, right? And I didn't want to go, I didn't want to, you know, create more resistance. But he came around to, uh, to it on his own, and he's a, he's a very sincere practitioner who has challenged me many times in my own practice in, in very healthy ways. Anyway, he, yes, is that Adam? Uh, Adam. <laughs> so if you have a cell phone, you might turn it off. So in his final paper, um, which took a while to finally get finished, but he did get finished after the graduation, but it was just okay with his teacher. Uh, he did a brilliant job, and he, he wrote this paper called Embodying Passion Through Expression. Mm. Subtitle, Awakening Courage to Voice What is Most Awkward and Uncomfortable. <coughs> and I want to um, read a little bit and have us explore, because it's, it's made me think since uh, reading it, um, as some as often his his uh, writings have made me think, um, and I want to have us explore uh, what he was pointing to. I'll read the the beginning or near the beginning. This is a, a paper that was both. It's supposed to be your personal journey and what you've learned through your time at Naropa. So there's personal stuff in it, and then there's looking at the theories and concepts. He's a psych major, somatic psychology, which is both getting in touch with the, um, um, the embodied sense of what goes on in our mind and heart. So, I'll just read a little to start. On a personal level, I'm greatly invested in this topic because learning the willingness to take part in hard conversations with others has been one of the most powerful, liberating engagements of my lifetime. I grew up the son of an insight Vipassana meditation teacher 
in a house where meditation, Buddhist Dharma teachings, and the study of consciousness were daily topics of conversation. I started formally practicing sitting meditation when I was 13, when the shit hit the fan in middle school. Since then, I've practiced on several month-long retreats, studied Buddhism in India, was briefly ordained as a monk, along with other meditative endeavors. While I learned a lot from these experiences, something quite significant was missing from my spiritual education. Despite my engagement in meditation practices, for the vast majority of my life, I've been afraid to engage in conflict with others, afraid to embody states of anger and rage. Although my Buddhist upbringing had its value, I implicitly learned these mind states to be unacceptable. Due to this conditioning, I often felt ashamed and unlovable for being angry. Projecting this outwards, I bought into the belief that if I openly expressed anger and upset with friends, family, and lovers, they would inevitably disown me. Until a little more than a year ago, I mostly bypassed feelings of anger by using the insight meditation method of noting and labeling my aversion. Angry, angry, upset, upset, pissed off, pissed off. I believed that these methods were helping me to cultivate equanimity, calm, and insight into the empty nature of phenomena. While this may have been true in other situations, with regards to anger, I now see how it was a strategy to avoid feeling the overwhelmingly intense energy in my body. Can... Uh, if you can relate to what he is pointing to, I'm just getting. A, I want to get a sense if there's sometimes there have been these subtle beliefs that it's not okay to feel the fullness of your emotions. <clears throat> and I'm I'm not suggesting that you should feel that way. Hopefully, actually, as I. If we've been hanging out together, maybe you've heard me say more than once that it's important to be just right where you are, that this is not about putting a smile on your face and thinking everything is nicey-nice. And in fact, it's interesting, he had to come to terms with the fact that it wasn't okay for him to feel anger and rage and intense emotions on that side of the scale. And I, as you know, I've said, mentioned here many times and have written a book about it, uh, somehow had a subtle belief for a period in my practice that it wasn't okay to feel joy, to feel the aliveness on that level. Um, and I then explored what the Buddha did have to say about joy and happiness and, and came to the same conclusion as he did from around the other end, which is that to be fully human, you need to embrace and embody everything coming through you. However, um, 
it's easy to have that as an idea, but not as a genuine, full expression. And I honestly uh, credit uh, my wife, Jane, with really being a great teacher in, in helping me get in touch with anger. Because it was like he, 30, we've been together 31 years now, um, it was the one emotion that really scared me. You know, not just because of any kind of Buddhist beliefs, but because I, I just was afraid of, my, of the power in there. Afraid of what if I really let it out, really come to terms with it. Um, because, you know, sometimes it would come out and I would you know, frighten myself at the possibilities. So it took me a while to get what, um, what he is talking about, that it's really important to get in touch with it. But he, Adam, has gone one step further and, you know, he, he kind of... He, these days, I hope jokingly kids me about my, my yin side, you know, and he says, you know, you got to have an edge, Dad, you know. <laughs> and he's got, he does have an edge, um, but with a very good heart, so that, that helps things. Um, but anyway, his whole paper is about the courage to say what's true, not just to let it out, but the importance and the um, alignment with your life energy when you do, and the price that you pay when you don't. I'll read a little bit more, and maybe we can talk together. He goes into talking about how, uh, in, on healing levels, the importance of not uh, closing your throat, throat chakra and on the, the actual physiological benefits and of, of, express, of being aligned with your heart and your, and your mind through your throat, as well as the, um, the um, disadvantages, health disadvantages and other disadvantages of, of not practicing truth-telling. He says, um, in conflict, um, unfortunately, this level of truth is usually hard to come by. Um, meaning is subjective, perspectives are relative. As long as one person is trying to convince the other that their version of reality is more correct, the communication is bound to fail and more than likely will be damaging to the relationship. Um, to speak the truth in a skillful way that leads to the direct he direction of healing requires that at least one of the people involved dares to drop below the realm of concepts and discover the feelings underlying uh, the feelings underlying about the situation 
the underlying feelings about the situation. He says, um, is this? he quotes uh, Gay Hendricks, in working with thousands of therapy clients, Hendricks brings to light a powerful phenomenon he refers to as a one-breath communication. That is, the things we really need to say in relationship are not complex. They can be said in one breath. A few powerful statements like this include, I want to marry you. I don't love you anymore. I'm angry, and I've been angry for a long time. I've lost respect for you. Mm. Aside from being very bold, these statements are powerful because they're expressions of embodied truth. There is synchronization and alignment between body, heart, and mind. Speaking this level of truth is extremely difficult, he says. We can spend hours or years skirting around this quality of honesty because it makes us very vulnerable. Whether the information is pleasant or unpleasant, this kind of communication opens us up and exposes us to others. This is a very scary prospect for many because being so genuine creates the possibility of getting hurt. That being said, learning the capacity to speak directly commits us to reality and empowers a sense of wholeness. When we express these emotions clearly, we discover the underlying needs which may or not may not be getting met in the current circumstances. This allows us the opportunity to reorient our intentions or behavior in a way that is more nourishing for us. By being clear within ourselves, we sell, save ourselves from wasting our precious life energy arguing points of view, doing our best to avoid a future we would resent, learning to listen inside to the needs and desires that are truly motivating, we focus our energy accordingly. This allows our creativity to flow. I want to read just a little more. There are times in life when we know we have something important to say, a one-breath communication is bubbling within us. But like a deer in the headlights, we are simply paralyzed. The space between us and another person is either cold, hot, or disconnected in such a way that there seems to be no suitable point of entry. We want to speak, want to contact the energy within us, but we feel stuck. We have no clue how to initiate this important conversation. In this moment, our fear-based habitual way of reacting is very strong. It's strong because we know we have something to say and we foresee that our words will have a strong impact on the other person. Unfortunately, we can't know exactly how they will respond or to what degree they will respond. This is unsettling because we sense their reaction could have an, ad, an effect on our state of being. The future, ambiguously unclear, our biological instinct is to worry, to ruminate, anticipate, and prepare ourselves for the worst possible scenarios. Just a little more. In my own life, oh yeah, here it is. 
Returning to the original topic of voicing the one breath communication, hope and fear are in play, filling the mind with worry and the body with unrest. What does one do? How can one skillfully respond? In my own life, I've come up with the only with only one solution for this situation. There is a moment in life I affectionately have come to call the moment of no return. At this juncture in time, it is as though we're standing on the edge of a cliff. It is a moment where in spite of fear, anxiety, and perhaps paranoia, we decide to leap headfirst into an open, uncertain future with the other person. Implicitly, it is a decision to re- that relinquishes comfort and security in order to discover what is real and authentic. I think I'll just stop here. Do you know that moment of no return? When I never quite heard it put in those words before, but when when I think of the conversations I've had that have been um, both challenging and meaningful and true, where I've dared to say what's true, knowing that it could be an unknown reaction on the other end, you know, whether it's saying, I love you, or I'm having a hard time here. When I think of the moments that precede that, should I, shouldn't I, I don't know about taking this risk or whatever, or especially in my, happens now, but but lots in my earlier years, lots and lots, because I was, I had a lot of fear. I still have fear, but... um, you know, now I kind of get excited when I'm afraid. I used to get really paralyzed when I was afraid. But still, there's that moment where we say, okay, I'm just going for it because this is the truth. And the alignment that comes is one of coming into wholeness with yourself. And he he makes the point somewhere in there. He says uh, something like, uh, I'm not advocating, you know, catharsis and just letting it all hang out. I'm glad he made that point. Um, But because, you know, you can be saying your truth and be creating messes all over the place. So there is... This is not to say blurting out whatever is inside of you. The, the Buddhist guideline, which perhaps he rebelled against, maybe re- interpreting it as a little bit too constricting, is saying what's truthful and what's useful. And usually that means what's truthful and kind, 
but in a way that somebody can hear it. That's useful. If there's a value to saying what's true for you, and there's behind the communication a clear communication, a clear expression of the intention of why you're saying what you're saying. We've talked about this before. It makes a huge difference to say, uh, are you ready for some feedback? You know, or I want to communicate something that's, that might be hard, but it's because I care so much about our relationship. And, and I, um, so I'm taking a risk here, but it's because I care about you and about us. If somebody gets that intention on the, on the other end, there's a greater likelihood of, of being heard. But even so, the primary guideline that he talks about is not feeling aligned with your own truth. That that is the motivation that, that, can, that can impel us to embody our aliveness, embody our passion through skillful expression. And this takes courage. It really does take courage. But the, the price of not being aligned, the interesting thing, as I'm sure we all know, when we kind of skirt around or we hope somebody will read our minds or we assume that they know. Don't they get it? Why are they not getting it? Whatever. Often it's because our assumption is incorrect. And it's not fair to put that on the other person. It's actually, not only does it disempower you, but it disempowers them to have these kind of ideas or expectations that they should get it. And they're wrong for not getting it. So since hanging out with this paper and, and we had some really great conversations about it, um, it's just, it's inspired me a bit more to just really stay aligned with my truth. And if I feel that there's something that's constricting or that's getting in the way and I value the relationship. Um, I've recommitted myself to saying what's true in as skillful a way as possible. I still think you can be kind. I think it's essential to be to at least come from a place of kindness even if the words don't come out that way, but when you're connected to a kindness that aligns and also allows the other person to meet in truth as well. So uh, I think I'll stop here. There's a, behind, all the way in the back here, yeah, there's a, uh, oh, hang on, yeah. Uh, here, hold, hang on, we'll, we'll, we'll tape it. This is good.
I was just wondering what you mean by truth. You mean your feelings that you're having? Because a lot of times I believe we believe what we believe, that that's our truth, and, you know, don't believe everything you think, in other words. So what do you mean by right. your truth? Very important question. That you're just reminding me of a, a T-shirt that I uh, remember my friend uh, Sylvia had, meditation, it's not what you think. Um, and I, uh, your point is really well taken that everybody has their own vantage point on a particular um, referent out there. So, and he makes this point, actually, I, I, I glossed over it. I, I didn't read that part. He was saying the one thing that you can know is how you feel about something. That, which is often the hardest one to say, that is where you, um, we can skirt our own personal truth because we're afraid of the response on the other side. And I think the key is to own where what you're feeling without attributing or ascribing blame to anyone. Everyone has a reality that makes sense to them. And that, I think, is the, is the key, say, in Dharma practice, in wise speech practice, to be connected to what you're feeling, not blame yourself or apologize inwardly for what you're feeling or even outwardly and not blame the other person as well because they've got their own reality but to say this is what's going on for me at least then you can start to meet in a place that's honest that's authentic that's what i'm talking about in front of you i think your son is great he's talking about really important things that uh people talk about when they're young and as we get older and into career and all that other things, you know, something gets lost in the transition. I have two thoughts I'd like to share. One that um, it's difficult. I, I have not always found that spiritual centers and places are places that encourage emotional sharing, emotional truth, if anything, despite all the good that occurs there is sitting, learning to center, and all of that. I, I think there is a, a, some degree of emotional repression that occurs in spiritual centers. That's my experience. The second, I don't know why that is so, but it, it appears to be for, at all kinds of places, mm -hmm. not just Buddhist centers. But mm -hmm. the second is uh, your, your plea that it would be nice in the sharing of truth that one make an I statement that take, you know, mm -hmm. rather than blaming or blurting. And it's true, we could all be more emotionally intelligent. Uh, you know, that never ends, that learning process. But sometimes uh, it is awkward. Uh, it doesn't come out as clear as one would like. And it's still important, you know. Uh, and I'm not saying that, I'm not articulating this as well as I'd like, but that... Uh, Maybe the importance sometimes is in the sharing, even if it's very imperfect. 
even if it's very imperfect. So whatever. Yeah. So the, for the first statement, um, as far as spiritual centers, I think it it is true. There can be there can easily be a, a bypass of the feelings. I think spirit rock. I must say is probably one of the the better communities around that we because <laughs> half or more of the teachers are either therapists or have uh, or have have psychological backgrounds and uh, you know this is the bay area and uh and we're also pretty you know sophisticated as far as keeping each other demanding the truth from each other as well and in and i think most of us realize that part of the the process of of opening and awakening is getting in touch with with our feelings uh, but still it can be uh, it, we're, we're not immune to that as well and i think there's lots of other centers that um that um fall into that trap as well as far as the imperfect yeah i'm still learning I'm still learning why speech. I learn it all the time. And here's the when I when I read Adam's paper, it was like the that fine line between taking the risk and maybe being imperfect or having it so clear and clean that you can say it in a way that um, that will be heard with with non face to face communication it 's a bit easier you don 't send the email the same day that you write it you know or you don 't send the letter the same day that you write it because having a little bit of space and getting out of the heat uh, will give you a lot more clarity and effective communication and I try actually to as best I can, use a similar principle in personal communication. When I'm in the middle of the heat, I, it serves me more in the long run to say I'm in the middle of, of something right now that I'm, I don't want to speak from this place of unclarity. Um, and I need a little bit of time. And if there's something, he's talking about how you can spend weeks or years skirting an issue. You know, that's different than get it out, vent it. Okay, but to reflect on it, I think is is usually helpful to just kind of reflect if there's something going on that can take a little bit more time to just kind of clarify first what am I feeling in here because that makes it a whole lot more connecting like he's saying than just putting it out on the other what am I feeling what is and underneath usually anger what is there it's, it's called the honey crested honey crested poison something like that where it feels sweet as you're getting rid of it, but underneath, it's really poison. And underneath the anger is usually, as probably many of us know, hurt, fear, 
some kind of softer emotion, more vulnerable emotion that um, is much easier to be heard, um, is much easier if you can get in touch with that and claim your, your vulnerability, then that's really where the anger is coming from. And he makes this point, actually, he, he beautifully uh, talks about his own personal experience where this all came to a fore, where his final, underst- where his big epiphany was, um, how did he put it? Emotional vulnerability is a path to fearlessness. And I've used that, that I paraphrase that line a lot because he learned this on a retreat a year ago and I said, uh, and he sat a month, a self-retreat, and I said, uh, or it wasn't a self-retreat, but a month-long retreat, and I said, uh, what'd you learn? He said, I learned about fearlessness. I said, oh yeah, well, what'd you learn about fearlessness? He said, I learned that vulnerability is the path to fearlessness because the expression of the anger and the rage is a cover-up for a vulnerability underneath. And when you can get to that place inside, not only are you hitting pay dirt, but you can also touch the heart of somebody on the other side too. It's a lot easier to hear when somebody says, you know, I'm really angry because I'm really hurt or I'm really scared. Then the heart opens up. So all of this is to say, you know, the, the, the whole sorting out of imperfect communication is an art that we can spend and should spend our life keeping cultivating. There's another hand in the back over there. It's the, the mic. Yeah, so some of the topics. Real close to your mouth. Some yeah. of, can people hear me okay? Put it uh, like on an angle. Some of the topics um, in your son's paper and what we've been discussing, um, my teacher, Moshe Feldenkrais, embodied mm. and did not limit his emotional expression. It could range from a tirade to absolute compassion like you've never seen it before. Yeah. And he advocated that that was being a full human being. Mm-hmm. Many people who came, whether from family scripts or ideas from psychology or what have you, and their own fears of emotional expression mm-hmm. were constantly projecting on him, he should be this way, he should be that way, mm-hmm. he shouldn't do what he did. And yet this man was extremely genuine, extremely compassionate, could tell people in a conversation, even though he did consider himself a Buddhist, I might add, uh, maybe not use the most skillful communication, but make a person feel this small. Hmm. That same person he might be with later, and with his genuineness, his directness, his immediacy, they felt fantastic and listened to and honored. Um, He was quite an example. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, from his own background, compared to the background that we come with and the kind of mixing of analytic psychology and Buddhism, 
there was an immediacy that was extremely genuine and not a lot of ruminating. Mm -hmm. And yet by his own example, I mean, you saw a person that when he was angry, he did not hold back. Mm -hmm. But if he was angry and somebody was in the light of that and felt a little bruised, that same person, there was not a resentment that he carried and he may be with them in another conversation. And I think that was the most beautiful example Maybe a little bit like Trungpa, too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, this guy, he didn't candy coat things. No. And uh, his quality as a person and as a healer was extraordinary as a result of it. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, and, and see, the, the other dimension that's not, uh, that's sometimes not factored in is people coming from different cultural conditioning. Um, and so everybody has their own unique conditioning and for some for some people they are you know th it's not at all uh it's not so jarring to hear something strong and for somebody else if they're not used to that kind of interaction they can be on the receiving end and in their own way, no blame, but feel traumatized. They might split and be traumatized for, you know, well, this happened and they're still reverberating. So it's a tricky kind of a thing. You can't say one size fits all. I, I tend to err on kindness or at least staying connected to my to at least that I'm, I'm coming as best I can from a loving heart. But sometimes I can lose my authenticity in that too. So it's not a, you know, it's not an either or. It, this, is, this is the line that we're all kind of exploring. And also to respect the, the different conditioning that we all bring to it. Yeah. And, and there are f people who I have tremendous respect for who can have what's called fierce compassion. You know, Trunkba used to say, there's a difference between idiot compassion, <laughs> which is a lot like codependence and enabling, like that, oh yes, dear, we'll take care of it. And fierce compassion, where you say, sorry, this isn't gonna fly. We need to take care of this, you know, and be very strong, but coming from compassion within oneself. So this is uh, a practice we're all, you know, we're all learning more and more, waking up to being authentic and at the same time skillful so we can not only be heard but help the other person wake up as well. Okay, so um, let's close with a short loving kindness. Thank you for your attention. So just uh, as you sit here, connect with your own truth in this moment, with your own authentic reality, whether it's tiredness or uh, interest or joy or annoyance or whatever it is. Just let it be how it is. 
and bring a kind awareness to that. The awareness can hold it all. The awareness is your true nature. And reflect on the sincerity of heart that would bring you to sit on a Thursday night with other people and share the Dharma. And send some kind thoughts to yourself. May I see clearly. May I access the truth inside and share my love well. And share, share my authenticity well. May I have real peace. And freedom of heart. And then to include everybody in this field of kindness and send it out to all beings everywhere. May all connect with their truth and share it skillfully. And may all share their love well. May all know peace and happiness. And may our coming here together be of benefit to all beings everywhere. Thank you very much for your attention. See you next week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.